1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to talk about a very challenging paragraph, one that is often overlooked and an emphasis that I think needs to be made today. I'm going to offer you an alternative, an option that perhaps some of you have not considered before. This should be challenging and stimulating. I hope you'll have as much fun with it as I have had in preparing it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read to you the first seven verses, and in honor of the Word of God, would you stand with me, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. If you're taking notes, entitle it Sex and the Single Christian because there are two themes that are obvious in this paragraph, sex and singleness. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll talk about it. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours of meeting together around the Word of God. And Father, it is a challenging thought to realize that youth pastors have their eyes riveted upon this school. I pray, Father, that they will see in our own lives a purity and a commitment to you unparalleled and unmatched in any other Christian school. Thank you for raising up this school over the years as a standard of righteousness in a very wicked world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me give you some background. Obviously, the Corinthian church was a messed up group of people. As Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he was correcting many of the things that were going wrong in the church. They were a divided church. They were an immoral church. They were a proud church. They were abusing the Lord's table. They were misusing spiritual gifts. They had misunderstanding concerning the resurrection. And Paul wrote the Corinthian church to correct the problems. The first half of the book, he deals with specific issues that he had heard about. The second part of the book, beginning at chapter 7, verse 1, he begins to answer questions that they had written him and asked him about. So what we are dealing with this morning is an answer to some of the questions that they had written. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he dealt with the problem of incest and told the church to kick the guy out of the church who was involved in an affair with his stepmother. In chapter 6, Paul wrote the Corinthian church and told them to flee immorality and not become involved with immorality because if you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one with her. And in taking that strong stand against sexual abuse and sexual immorality, he generated in their minds several questions. For example, what about sex? Is it wrong all the time? I mean, you have said to flee immorality and not to involve yourself in immorality, but does that mean that sex is always wrong? Is it even wrong in marriage? Are we more spiritual if we abstain from sex even in marriage? There were those in the Corinthian church who thought so. They're married, they have their wives, their husbands, but if we abstain from sex even in marriage, we are more spiritual. Is that true? 
What is God's standard regarding the physical aspect of our dating? How far can we go physically and still obey the godly standard? That was the question. Is it true that if you don't have any intercourse at all, then anything goes? I mean, is that the standard? As long as you don't, quote, go all the way, does everything else fall under that which is acceptable behavior? That was the question. So you had the extremes. There were those who said no sex and you're spiritual. And there were those who said you can do whatever you want as long as you don't go all the way. So where do you draw the line? What about marriage? Is singleness second class? Or is singleness more spiritual? Are you more spiritual if you remain single, or are you more spiritual if you get married? Those were very important questions. The Corinthian church was embroiled in a society that was a joke, literally a joke. Divorce was rampant. It was not uncommon for some guys to have been married and divorced 20 times. Can you imagine? Think of the alimony. Child support. Incredible. Adultery was common, homosexuality was epidemic, polygamy was practiced regularly, men had concubines, women's lib was in full force. In fact, if you wanted to see a picture of the all-American Corinthian woman, she was wearing a helmet, delighted in feats of strength, and they would have posters of her hunting pigs with spears. How about that, gals? The all-American Corinthian woman. It was a free-for-all. And people were getting saved out of this thing. And in the midst of all of that confusion, Paul set the standard regarding sex and regarding singleness. And I think it is very important that you and I understand exactly what was said. So I am going to make four statements, two of which have to do with sex and two of which have to do with singleness. This is God's standard. Statement number one. Sex outside of marriage, Paul said, the answer is what? No. Sex outside of marriage, the answer is no. Verse 1. Now, concerning things about which you wrote, your questions, here's the first one. What about sex outside of marriage? Is it okay to go as far as you want as long as you don't cross the line and go all the way? The answer, no. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And in that one statement, Paul drew the line and answered the forever asked question, how far physically can we go in our dating? And the answer is, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. What does that mean? That phrase, touch a woman, is used in the Old Testament three times. It is used in Genesis 20, it is used in Ruth chapter 2, and it is used in Proverbs chapter 6. And it always refers to a touch in a sexually stimulating way. So in terms of physical involvement in dating, Paul drew the line and said, you have gone too far if you engage in any kind of touching that will stimulate or arouse you sexually. That is where the line is drawn. The minute you begin to get turned on, you have gone too far. I had a person tell me not long ago. He said, well, intercourse, of course, is forbidden, but as long as you don't do that, anything else goes. Not true. You have gone too far the moment you have touched a girl to the point where you or her become stimulated. If you don't agree with that, then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 echoes the thought. 
and I think it's rather obvious, so I won't spend a lot of time developing it. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that word means sanctification, set apart by God as a holy person for a holy purpose, live that way. That is sanctification. Set apart by God as a holy person for a holy purpose, live that way. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, what does he mean by that? Sexual immorality. Everything leading up to the act itself is okay? No. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, listen, verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter. The word defraud in that context can be defined as stirring up a desire that cannot be righteously fulfilled. If in dating you stir up a desire that cannot be righteously fulfilled, you have defrauded. You have gone too far. And as kind of a footnote, Paul says, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. That is serious. God is the avenger in that. God will judge that. In a dating relationship, to involve yourself physically to the point where you stir up physical desires that cannot be righteously fulfilled, at that point you have gone too far. So, sex outside of marriage. The answer, no. No. Question. Number two that Paul answered, what about sex inside of marriage? What about sex within marriage? Are you more spiritual if you abstain even in marriage? The answer, sex within marriage, yes. Yes. Sex inside of marriage, yes. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Sex within marriage? Are you more godly and spiritual if you abstain? No, Paul said, do it. In marriage, do it. Not only are you not more spiritual if you abstain, if you abstain from sex within marriage, you are sinful. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. The husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Now here it is. Your body is regarded by God as a wedding present to your husband or your wife. So, Paul says, outside of marriage, keep your body pure because it is a gift that you will present to your husband or wife when you get married and you want to present him or her a pure gift. But in marriage, your body is a gift that you have given for your husband or wife's enjoyment. Let him or her enjoy it. It is a gift you have presented. You have relinquished the authority over your own body and given that authority to your husband or wife. So sex inside of marriage? Yes. It is not only permitted in marriage, it is commanded in marriage. Commanded. Verse 3, fulfill your duty. Verse 5, stop depriving one another. It is commanded. Why? Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I've had people ask me, why did God command that? 
I mean, I think that's one command I'll pretty well fulfill. I'm willing to do that one. No problem. I don't need to be told to have sex in marriage, man. I can't wait. I mean, I'm ready. Why was that commanded? Well, I have found three reasons that God has commanded to have sex in marriage. Three reasons. In counseling various couples over the years, these three have come out loud and clear. Reason number one. There are some people, perhaps some of you, who because of past sin in your life in the area of sex or because of your upbringing, you have been led to feel that sex is evil or dirty. And because there are some husbands or wives who in their subconscious feel that sex is evil or dirty, there is a resistance to engaging in sex with their husband or wife. A resistance, a reluctance, because of a subconscious thought that maybe this is dirty. So in the midst of that, Paul wrote this chapter and said, No, within marriage it is beautiful, so enjoy it. You need not feel any guilt at all. The second reason God commanded it is this. There are some people who have a less intense sex drive than others. And I have met couples where, for example, the wife has a minimal sex drive, but the husband is wired for 220, man. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she's running on a 9-volt transistor battery, and he's got a Sears diehard going. (laughs) And in his pursuit of fulfilling his own desire for sex, I know of some women who have said to me, my husband, there's something wrong with the guy. I mean, he's perverted in some way. I mean, the guy just never quits. He's less than spiritual. What's wrong with my husband? And it's simply a case of one person having a stronger sex drive than the other. And so in the midst of that, Paul writes this as if to say, Women, if you're in that situation where you have a minimal sex drive and your husband has an overactive one or vice versa, then just simply understand it's not that he or she is unspiritual. It is to say that you have presented your body to him or her to enjoy. Let him enjoy it and don't deprive one another. And then the third reason that Paul commanded it is this. I even know of some situations where the husband or wife uses sex as a weapon to punish or manipulate. Tragic. They use sex as a weapon to punish or manipulate. I mean, I'm on to him. I know what he wants and I can get whatever I want by playing on that desire. And in the midst of that, Paul says, no, you're in sin. Satan will tempt you due to your lack of self-control. Don't use it as a weapon. Don't use it to manipulate. Girls, you don't have authority over your body anymore. Your husband does. Guys, you don't have authority over your own body. Your wife does. It is a gift that you gave the night you were married. No strings attached. So stop depriving one another and fulfill your duty. So, what does Paul say about sex? Outside of marriage, no. Don't even involve yourself to the point where you stimulate or arouse one another. That is not to be a part of your dating. And you know as well as I that if you have involved yourself in that at all, it brings incredible frustration and temptation and pressure, and it could be enough to crack the relationship. So don't even let it be an issue with you when you're dating. Guys, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But in marriage, yes, fulfill your duty and stop depriving one another. Thirdly, what about singleness? 
If you spend the rest of your life single, old maid, right? Are you second class? Or, if you spend your life single, are you more spiritual? And there are two extremes. There are some who say that if you are single, you are more spiritual. And there are others who say that singleness is second class. You may never ever admit that verbally. But I've been around here long enough to watch. And you are typical of people... This is going to make me sound terribly old... But you are very typical in your approach to this subject of people your own age, right? Where marriage has become something that consumes the mentality of most college-age young people today. It is a goal to be achieved regardless of the cost. And there are some situations where we would do anything to get a date, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend... I even read a magazine, a Christian magazine called Solo. You've heard of that thing? For Christian single people. And they have want ads in the back. Ah, This is true. And I have read the ads where guys and gals, Christian guys and gals, have taken out ads. Fun-loving guy. You know? I mean, they're sickening, some of them. Fun-loving guy. Buff bod. Have money, will marry. You know, this kind of deal. Incredible. Only been divorced twice. It's unbelievable. So what about singleness? And the pressure is on today to get married. And the pressure is intensified because I would, I would suppose, for the girl especially, the pressure is intense because you're not in the driver's seat. You've got to sit by the phone and wait for it to ring. You're not the initiator. And so the pressure can be intensive. And what if the phone never rings? Or what if you're a guy and you simply don't have a desire to date right now or there's no one you are interested in? And by the time a guy reaches 24, 25, 26 years old, if he's not dating somebody and shows no interest in marriage, people begin to talk. I mean, what's the matter with the guy? He's lacking some hormones or, uh, you know, what's wrong? And I'm afraid that in our society, and even in the context of the church, we either consciously or subconsciously have taken the concept of singleness and made it second class and attached a stigma to it. So that if you are older and marriageable and yet unmarried, there is either something wrong with you in terms of your mentality or there's something wrong with you physically so that you feel you're not attractive enough or whatever and what's wrong with me. And it can be devastating. And so in the midst of all of that, Paul wrote this chapter to clear up the confusion. And perhaps in these next few minutes, God will permit me to clear up some confusion. Two principles you need to understand about singleness. Number one, singleness is very tempting. Singleness is tempting. There are temptations unique to singleness, and you need to understand that. Verse 2, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. So singleness is tempting. And one of the reasons God designed marriage was to satisfy and fulfill that area of temptation. Not to say that once you get married, you will never be tempted physically again, but it is to say that you do have a natural God-given outlet to relieve the pressure of that temptation. 
Lest you think that marriage was designed by God only for sexual gratification, let me quickly review the reasons why God designed marriage. There are five of them. Number one, God ordained marriage for procreation. It's God's way of having babies. Procreation, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 28. And that was only to be done within the context, obviously, of marriage. Procreation. Secondly, pleasure. Marriage is fun. It is pleasurable. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated always with her love. It is pleasurable to be married. Thirdly, partnership. Partnership. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God referred to the wife as a, quote, suitable helper. There is a partnership involved. Fourthly, it is a picture. It is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church. And because of the predominance of divorce and remarriage within the church, I'm afraid we have taken that beautiful picture and shattered it. And then finally, number five, it is for purity. Marriage was designed by God for sexual purity, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, because of immoralities. Have your wife and your husband. So understand that if you are single, there are temptations unique to singleness. And that will always be the case. And marriage is not wrong. It is not wrong. You are not more spiritual if you do not marry. You can be married and spiritual. How about that? So Paul said, have your own husband, and women have, husbands have your own wife. Now the fourth thing, and we'll spend a little bit more time with this one, because it is a message that I feel in my heart needs to be given today. And really this was the bulk of what I wanted to say to you. Everything else is just introductory to this. Let me, if I can, take the whole concept of singleness and give it a different approach and perhaps show it to you from a different perspective. And I believe it is a message that needs to be echoed throughout the nation today in our churches. And it is this. Number four. Singleness is a gift of God. Singleness is a gift of God. Verses six and seven. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Now the word concession there can be translated awareness. I say this by way of awareness, yet I'm not commanding it. In other words, Paul is saying regarding the issue of singleness, I am not going to command you to be single, but I do want you to be aware of a quality regarding singleness that maybe you didn't see before. It is as if Paul is saying, I want you to be aware of the fact that singleness has with it incredible privileges and benefits. It is a gift of God. I am not commanding you to be single, but I do want you to be mindful of the fact that if you are single, God has granted you a very special gift. Verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in that. In other words, Paul said, if you are called to a single life, God has given you an incredibly precious gift. Now, we don't hear that today. True? Singleness is not a stigma. Doesn't mean you have a hormonal imbalance or you're unattractive or undesirable or you're weird. 
There is no stigma attached to it. It is not a doomed existence. Talking to young people as I do camp after camp after camp and place after place, whenever I touch on this issue, I have people, the issue of the Lordship of Christ, I have young people say to me, I want Him to control every area of my life, no question about it. But don't call me to be single. God, anything but that. I mean, I'll wear a tutu and I'll live in a grass hut. But don't call me to be single. It is not a doomed existence. Singleness is not a second-class state. It isn't. And please, let us drop the phrase, old maid, and the mentality that goes with it. I don't use the term old maid. I prefer the term single servant. Single servant. And it is true that God calls some people to the privilege of living their entire lives as a single servant. I saw the contrast last week at Hume Lake. A youth pastor there in a church who told me that one of the reasons he got the job in preference to another guy who was on staff is simply, it comes down to one thing, he was married, the other guy was single, and the church refuses to hire any guy who is single on staff. Now where is that scripturally? Then I met another youth pastor who has been a youth pastor for 20 years. He's 43 years old and been single his entire life. So there are the extremes. And in the midst of all of it, Paul tries to bring clarity by pointing out that if you are single, there is no stigma attached to it. It is not a doomed existence. It is not a second-class state. And you are not an old maid. You are a single servant. God bless you. And then in chapter 7, Paul lists one, two, three, four, five, six reasons as to why you should consider singleness as an option. Let me give them to you quickly. Six reasons as to why you should consider singleness as an option. And my goal and desire is that when I'm through in about ten minutes, you will walk out of here honestly saying in your heart before God, God, the issue of marriage will no longer be an issue with me. I lay it at your feet. And if you call me to be married, I'll praise you for it. And if you call me to spend the rest of my life being a single servant, then I will thank you that you have granted me a gift that you grant to but a select few people. And I will praise you for the privilege. Why should singleness be considered as an option? Reason number one, because of the reality of present day distress. Because of the reality of present-day distress, we are living in a world that is tormented continually by incredible distress. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, that is to say Jesus never dealt with this, but I'll give my opinion as one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy. So Paul is exercising his apostolic authority, dealing with an issue that Jesus didn't teach about, singleness. Here it is. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. If you are bound to a wife, don't seek to be released. But if you are released from a wife, if you are single, don't seek a wife. That's my opinion. And he says because of, quote, present distress. That means two things. 
It means primarily the persecution that was coming to the church. But it is broader than that. It also means the suffering and the pressures of a world in turmoil. And believe me, having been single for a number of years and now having been married for a number of years, I know exactly what he is talking about. Some of you girls, because of your God-given maternal instinct, dream about the day you will give birth to your own child. And it is delightful being a father. I love my son with all my heart. And it is a God-given gift to me to have that child in my home. But it can be agonizing at times. I am reminded every day when I have breakfast and I look upon the faces on the sides of milk cartons of children stolen of the fact that we are living in a world of distress. I read last week about the fact that we're on the brink of declaring war with Libya. And we are faced with the reality of the possibility of of war. And to raise a son in the culture that we now live, I fear for him. I worry about him. What will he face when he is my age? What kind of torment will he be called upon to endure? And so there is an incredible amount of joy, but there is a sense of real fear. Because we are living in a world given over to that. And if you don't think it's tough to be responsible for a family today, you have missed it. It's hard. And it's a responsibility that, frankly, at times I wish I didn't have to carry on my shoulders. What if he rebels and denies the faith, as Eli's son did, 1 Samuel chapter 2? God will put that upon my shoulders. It's a responsibility that can be agonizing at times. And so because of the reality of present distress, Paul said you may want to consider singleness, and then you don't have to worry about it. You only have to worry about you. Secondly, the reality of pressure. Verse 28, if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet, such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you, Paul said. You want to get married? God bless you. Get married. But understand this, you're going to have pressure, trouble, tribulation. There will be financial pressure. There will be the time pressure. There will be the concern over provisions. I mean, my family has some bad habits. They like to eat. They like to wear clothes. They like to live under a roof when it rains. I have the responsibility of providing for them a house, providing for them food, providing for them clothes. 1 Timothy 5.8, if I don't provide for my own house, I'm worse than an unbeliever and infidel. That is a pressure. I wish at times I was free from that pressure and didn't have to worry about it, but I do. I am responsible for the provision of my own family. And Paul said, if you want to get married, go ahead. But I'm trying to spare you of trouble and understand. The honeymoon ends, friend. And then, guys, she likes to eat. (laughs) Thirdly, you have the reality of the passing of this present world system. The reality of the passing of this present world system. Verse 29, this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now what in the world does that all mean? Let me give it to you quickly. There are five things in life that tend to consume an individual. Five things. Five things that can become consuming for a person. Sorrow. 
Have you ever met someone consumed with sorrow? They're always down. Rejoicing. An emotional high can be consuming. Have you ever met people who are always looking for an emotional lift? They go from party to party to party. And that's all they want is just the tingle that comes from a good time. The good time Charlie's. And the pursuit of that can be consuming. Paul said possessions can be consuming. Do you know of anyone who is possessed by his possessions? Always wanting more. Pleasure can be consuming. Pleasure. The quest for pleasure. And then finally, marriage can be consuming. Your marriage can consume you. And Paul's thought is this. All of that is temporary. Marriage is temporary. Sorrow is temporary. Rejoicing is temporary. Possessions are temporary. Pleasure is temporary. So here's the point. Don't build your life on those things. They're temporary. Or to put it this way. If... For you, singleness has never been an option because you have told yourself that you will never be fulfilled unless you are married. Paul said, you're missing the boat because marriage is temporary. Your husband or wife could die. And if fulfillment in life comes only from a wedding ring, you have set yourself up for insecurity because what if that relationship should end? If you get married, it should be for one reason God has called you to it. It should not be because in your mind it is the only way you will ever be fulfilled. You get the point? Fourth, and we've got to hurry, the reality of the preoccupations of marriage. The reality of the preoccupations of marriage, verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. One who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and is a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. The reality of the preoccupations of marriage. Your loyalties will be split. On the one hand, you want to please the Lord and give your life to serving the Lord. But on the other hand, you have a family to take care of. And there is a limitation to your availability in serving God. I can't just answer every time somebody calls and says, will you speak somewhere? Have Bible, we'll travel. I have to consider my family and the time that I give to them and turn down many opportunities because my family has to be first in priority. That is a very good thing if God calls you to raising a family. But it can be a distraction if He has not called you to get married, but you have married out of the will of God, you will be distracted. And so Paul said, the advantage to singleness is you can serve the Lord with single-hearted devotion. Two more. Number five. The reality of the promise of her father. This is a little tricky. Verse 36. If any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be a full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. It simply means this. Girls, do not get married against your father's wishes. Do not get married out of your father's wishes. And it could be that a father, recognizing that God has called his daughter to singleness, will not give permission or consent to get married. 
And so all that Paul said is, girls, if you're in that situation where your father will not give consent for you to get married, don't be bitter toward him, don't rebel against him, recognize it as the will of God for your life at this point in time that you remain single. We have a girl here today in this situation, and I'm not going to embarrass her, but I'll just simply tell you that she wanted to get married, and her dear uh, husband-to-be goes to this fine school as well, and they wanted to get married, and they went and asked her parents' permission, and they said no. And so as an obedient couple, they did not get engaged, but were very happy to accept that. And then when the time was right, God changed the heart of her mom and dad. Not only did they give consent for them to get married, but told them the very date that they thought was the best for them. And so God, in an audible voice through her mom and dad, told her, now is the time, and this is the place. And today she showed me for the first time her ring. And thank God that she obeyed her mom and dad, because it would have been disaster to marry the right guy at the wrong time. So all that Paul said is in considering singleness, if your father says no, and girls, that'll happen to some of you, you fall in love with this guy, you're ready to get married, you think it is the will of God, and your dad says no. Don't become bitter. Don't rebel. Take it as from the Lord, and when the time is right, God will change their hearts. And then finally, the last one. The reality of the permanence of marriage. Verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only marry a Christian, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, single, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. In other words, guys, gals, listen. Don't jump on the bandwagon to get married. Don't look at this thing through primrose glasses, rose-colored glasses. Understand that there is more than the bells and the goosebumps and the exhilaration of it. Realize that you are entering into a relationship that will last a lifetime. It is the two of you for a life. And there are too many people who get married, not because they love their person they are marrying, but because they love getting married. You know what I'm saying? My day has come. It's finally happened to me. I've always been the bridemaid. And now I'm the bride. And you see the exhilaration of that forgetting that once the honeymoon ends... Now you're committed for life, for better or for worse, until death us do part. And so you better be very selective in the person you marry, because there are no options other than death. And God does that, not you. (laughs) Understand the seriousness of it. Well, I'm out of time. Let me put it all together for you. What's the point? The point is this. We are living in a day, much like the day Paul addressed, in that there has been much confusion in the church today regarding singleness. And there is much teaching today that will consciously or subconsciously make you feel guilty if you are single. Or make you feel second class if you are single. As if marriage is the only option. And there is today a need for balance. And I believe that 1 Corinthians 7 brings it into focus. If you want to get married, get married. 
You have done a noble thing. God will bless you. It is beautiful. But if God calls you to be single, don't look upon it as a doomsday reality. Don't look upon it as a stigma that you will carry around your neck for the rest of your life. Don't see yourself as an old maid, undesirable, unwanted. See yourself as a very precious, single servant of God. A person to whom God has granted one of His most precious gifts. The gift of singleness. Understand? Does that make sense? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that the Word of God speaks to every issue of our lives. And Lord, I know that there are seated in front of me today guys and gals who have lived for so many months under the pressure of getting involved in a dating relationship and dreaming about and thinking about marriage. There are some here who feel such a sense of a lack of self-worth because no guy or gal has come their way. And the fear of singleness has been great. God, I pray that today through your truth we have been liberated from that and that we will realize that marriage is a blessing of the Lord, but singleness is a special gift. And God, to whom you grant this gift, may each one thank you that you have called them to the privileged position of being a single servant for the glory of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.